This podcast is for entertainment and informational purposes only. Copyright disclaimer under Section 107 of the Copyright Act of 1976. Allowance is made for fair use for purposes such as criticism, comment, news reporting, teaching, scholarship, education, and research. Fair use is a use permitted by copyright statute that might otherwise be infringing. All rights and credit go directly to its rightful owners. No copyright infringement intended. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to My Guria. This is episode G, and we will feature songs and themes starting with the letter G. Another G theme is we actually have a guest on this episode. Additionally, I'll answer an inquiry from a listener, and we'll talk a bit about various forms of entertainment. So get comfortable. This is going to take some time. and welcome back to a long hiatus from you know it as you're listening Migoria. starting to kind of regret the name of this show honestly but already have all the stuff in place for promoting it or whatever and yeah it has been a while since i have done an episode i believe my last episode was in december of 2020 what the fuck year are we in yeah it was december of 2020 and we are now in 2022. Well, there has been a lot of things that have happened, but a lot of shit remains the same too. Namely, the fact that I can't believe that I'm going to say this, but we are really still under a fucking lockdown. When I had done my previous episodes of the show, we didn't have a vaccine yet at that moment, and I was greatly anticipating it. Well, um, sorry if that was loud. Apparently, there's many people who don't or won't get the vaccine and have their conspiracy theories and it's interrupting their freedom. I don't know about you, but I am really fucking sick of having to be holed up in my house. I'm sick of this shit. I'm really sick of this shit. And just for the record, I am triple vaxxed at this point because I've had the initial the second round, and the booster. I've had all three. Yeah, I had side effects. Big deal. I mean, I'm still here. Everyone's like, it's going to kill me. It's going to kill What the fuck is wrong with you? <clears throat> what I did want to address is the fact that when you actually do have to go out in public, people are more obnoxious than I have ever fucking witnessed in my lifetime. Now, I've always had a pretty bleak observation as far as how people, you know, I, I, I'm not a people person. Granted, I have friends, but I don't really trust other humans to make the best decisions, that is, or that they have my best interests in mind as well. I have just seen, I have seen such a fucking de-evolution of our species. It was already happening before the pandemic, but this is at a fucking an alarming rate. And it has led to people being so fucking bored that they are inventing new problems on top of this major problem. And apparently getting people to care about something other than them fucking other than themselves is just too fucking much to ask for. So here we are. Now we're on the 
Omicron variant. See, when I was doing this last, I don't believe there were variants. I think it was just COVID. I'm getting to the point where I can't fucking remember anymore. But th- this is where we're at. We're at a fucking mutation. I knew this was going to fucking happen. If people can't comply or get their shit together or make a fucking, you know, educated decision, because apparently that's, that's just it. People think they're educated by reading paranoia blogs from just wackos on the fucking internet with their conspiracy theories. You know, this isn't 1984, the book. This isn't that, but the people act like it is. But if you were, if you've gotten this far into my rant, then you're probably just as disgusted as I am with the shape of things and how there really has been, there's been scientific progress, but you can't fucking, you can't force morons to comply, apparently. I wish we could. I really, I really do. I wish this, this shit would be eradicated at this point if people could just fucking comply, but they won't. Now it's mutated to the point where who knows if any, if any of this shit's going to even help at this point. I mean, I am glad that I'm vaccinated. I'm glad that my husband's vaccinated. I'm glad that everybody in my family, we're all smart enough to, to be able to make the decision of, yeah, we, none of us fucking want COVID. But apparently there's too many other people who are just waiting it out like, oh, I'm going to get it anyway. All right, then fine. Go fucking die in the ICU unit. I don't care. So on that note, I will change the subject because I can. This is my fucking show. And uh, so, all right. So let's see here. Well, what is what has actually gone on in this past year since my last episode of this other than horrible world events? Because there's been <clears throat> more than just the pandemic. There's been more shit that's happened. None of it good. Really, none of it's good. But what has it done for, let's just say, from just, I'll just go from my own perspective of like mental stability. Now, this shit has impacted me greatly. And I feel, I felt the need to mentally get my shit together. And comparatively speaking, I guess I already had my shit together. But there's things that, you know, anxieties, fears that, you know, I, depression that I wanted to address because I'd like to take the responsible route of fixing my problems, not just ignoring them like apparently so many other fucking people want to do. It made it very difficult for employment this past year. So, ha ha ha, since we talked about in previous episodes, the whole shitty job segment. I guess I will talk about my adventures in shitty jobs. As I was uh, exiting my career in December of 2020, it was more or less to have enough concentration to embark on a new career, which was in fraud detection. I'm not saying the company I work for because they probably fucking sue me or whatever. Now, I went to the training, which was total bullshit, by the way. I mean, it was better than the first work at home option I had mentioned before. At least it was five weeks of training, but it was still bullshit for what we were actually facing. And given the whole pandemic, fraud has been, you know, as far as ripping people's bank accounts, credit cards off, it is at the worst it's ever been as far as um, there's no other way to put it. I mean, People have so much time on their hands, free time on their hands. They're they're inventing new ways to rip other people off. And I definitely got that as a takeaway from 
from working that position. But what I also took away from it is that I went into it with the best intentions of, I like the idea of helping people who are in a tough spot that they didn't actually get themselves into. I always felt like, well, if someone had, if there was any kind of fraud on anybody's bank account, they didn't do it. Somebody else victimized them. Well, yes, that is true. And that's what I was, um, that was my intentions. I thought that would make me feel better as a human being, I guess, to be in the position of, of being able to help somebody in a situation that I actually had some power to help them in that they didn't foresee happening. But the reality of a fraud detection department is that you're not really doing fraud detection. You're basically funneling calls from people who are freaking the fuck out because somebody stole their money. Because it's a call center type of situation, which luckily I'm glad I was able to do this from home. Because there is no, no fucking way in hell I would work on site at a call center, given this disease, of course. But still, the, the amount of distractions would be monumental. But back to what I was saying about um, how it really, what the job really in, consisted of was funneling calls and not actually helping anybody, but spending most of the call verifying who the person was and having to make a snap decision, judgment based upon what the caller was saying of how to proceed with a fraud case or whether or not it's a fraud case or not, because it varies. And all right, you get people who are very distraught on the other line and, and understandably so, but you also get more assholes than anything. Rude fucking assholes. But that part of the job was actually kind of funny. It was kind of comical because those who were rude, <laughs> they fucked up their accounts. That's pretty much what happened. So you don't have to, ha you don't have a lot of sympathy for them. But of course, they're hurling abuse in my fucking ear for nine plus hours a day because there was always overtime that I was, I couldn't refuse. That's the other thing that's really sucked about it. Wearing a headset, hearing people yell in my fucking ear all day long, having my calls monitored, that was nice for metrics. <laughs> the fact that I have a chronic migraine affliction, which I obviously have talked about before. Yeah, this was a this was going to implode at some point. But the thing that really, really fucking pissed me off about this position was when I get back to the thing about metrics was that they wanted basically everyone in my department to handle a call in seven minutes or less. Never mind. You have to go through all these verification levels, which these people have already been through verification through the electronic menu, you know, up front. And then they get us on the line after fucking waiting. And then they, we have to do it all over again. And they're fucking livid at this point. I, I can understand that. It's the whole seven minutes and under. Because let me tell you, people don't want to volunteer their information up front. They want to make it as irritating as possible because they're, they're, already, they're already victimized. I can't say being, they're not being irritating. It's more like they're fucking frustrated. And they've been victimized. So they are already going in amped up. So they don't want to give more information over the phone. They just had their information compromised, so they really don't want to give more information over the phone. But I can't, I couldn't help them unless I got that information. So it was like pulling teeth. And then most of the time, I'd say at least half, of, more than half of my cases were, you know, a lot of elderly people who don't quite understand technology. Now, I worked in a department where 
apparently lots of people were younger than me and they had no patience for people like this and would mock them practically. And apparently that was okay. I didn't think that was okay. And I felt the need to actually help these people and, you know, explain to them what happened because they don't know, they don't understand. Well, that got me in trouble. Apparently it got me in trouble that I'm taking too long with the customers in that my metrics were, were horrible because I actually wanted to help the person and have them understand before they got off the phone and that they walked away happy. Here's the fucking irony here. My managers didn't like this. However, all the callers had a, um, a survey that they had to take afterwards. And my survey numbers were higher than everybody in the department. But this was a problem, you know. God forbid you help anybody. So any kind of effort I made was going to go overlooked, scorned, whatever. What they did not like, like I said, was me helping the people, although the people liked me helping them. And, of course, that came to a bitter end. I quit. I didn't let them fire me. I should have let them fire me because I could have at least gotten unemployment. But I just, with all the technological failures that would happen on a daily basis with at-home equipment and having to call IT, who was, I don't know, probably on the other side of the fucking world or whatever, getting any kind of assistance because the, 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 the um, equipment would fail constantly. That was another aggravating issue. So what happened was I, I just basically had one of the worst migraines of my fucking life one day. And I just fucking took one last call from one last asshole and I just couldn't do it anymore. I'm just like, I fucking give up. I contact my boss. I'm like, all right, where do I send my equipment back to? I am done with this shit. So that's how that ended. But I do want to throw some tidbits of information that I did learn that were beneficial to, to anybody listening. First of all, and I'm going to say this and I'm going to emphasize this, never, and I mean never, use your debit card to pay for things. Just use it for cash to an ATM. And even that could be, you know, because there's skimmers and compromises on ATM machines. At least they would, you know, that's easier to track. As far as, um, you know, somebody used your information, there's there cameras on ATMs all over the place. If you use your debit card to buy things online or whatever, I mean, daily we were getting lists of, and I'm talking major retailers, I can't say who, that would have all of their cards in their systems compromised. Yes, this, and half the time, sometimes you hear about it on the news. Well, let me tell you, you don't hear nearly the, the majority of it. You hear, you know, whenever the news was slow that day, to be honest with you. And we haven't had a slow news day in two fucking years. So yeah, the amount of compromised situations were massive. Now, the other thing I want to say, <laughs> don't use any kind of um, money apps on your phone. And that goes with something like Venmo, Cash App. Don't fucking do it. Your shit is going to be fucking stolen. And here's the thing. Now, a credit card you can use because it's insured. You use your debit card. Like I said, I'm saying don't use your debit card for anything. Your debit card is uninsured and it's up to the bank to decide whether or not you're going to recoup your funds. And what here's the other wonderful thing that happens is that it will put your account into overdraft status and all those overdraft fees you will also be responsible for. So don't use your fucking debit card for any, uh, any purchases. Just don't do it. Don't. I can't stress this more. Also, I just want to throw this out here. If you are a fucking loser 
that subscribes to shit like OnlyFans or Bitcoin and any kind of cryptocurrency. But the ones that use their debit card for OnlyFans are a special breed of shit, of shit headery. <laughs> I know that's not even a word, but yeah. <laughs> just aptly describes these fucking fools. It's just amazing how aggravated some bro can be because he can't log in to get access to his imaginary girlfriend on OnlyFans because his account, his account was compromised. I wasn't too quick on the draw. These are the people I would rush through on the line because they're always assholes anyway. They weren't the ones I was really, I mean, I helped them, got the information I had to help them with, but <laughs> man, those calls were fucking hilarious. Anyhow, so let's uh, let's move on here. I have babbled on far too long, but there's been it's been a long year. Or yeah, it's been over a year, like I said before. And we are in episode G, so we are going to start this with a song by an artist that starts with G. Uh all right. Let's start this shit with Serge Gainsbourg here by Gorilla. Cannabis by Serge Gainsbourg from the film Cannabis, which is also known as French Intrigue. Anyhow, yeah, the movie Cannabis came out, I think, in 1970 or was filmed in 70. And 
the basic um, background of the film is that Serge is some kind of uh, hit band guy hired by the mafia, and he meets Jane, played by Jane Birkin, on the plane over to New York. He gets, like, mortally wounded at some point, and so somehow he ends up back at her place hiding out. In essence, this film was just basically softcore porn with Jane Birkin and Serge Gainsbury at the height of their infamy as a couple. Also, Paul Nicholas was in the film, too. He was, uh, I guess he was kind of like Serge's partner, cohort. He wasn't in it as much, but if you know who he is, he was Cousin Kevin in the Who's Tommy, the the Ken Russell film. The one who played Cousin Kevin was played by Paul Nicholas. And I believe he was also plays Wagner in, uh, as opposed to Roger Daltrey's Litz character in uh, another Ken Russell film, Litzomania. So I haven't seen Paul Nicholas in that many things, but every time I've seen him in something, he's always an asshole and this was no exception. So he must be good at playing like the fuckhead in films. <laughs> and I'll be honest with you, the only reason why I ever got into Serge in the first place was because I bought Mick Harvey's interpretations of his music, which was um, Intoxicated Man and Pink Elephants. And he's done more Gainsbourg interpretations since then, but they were, these were released in the mid-90s. And me being such a Bad Seeds fan, you know, I was like, oh, wow, Mick Harvey did some solo work. I got to get on this. And they are perfect. I mean, they may be all covers, but they are absolutely perfectly done. I mean, Mick did not fuck these up. I've heard some absolute shit fucking covers of Serge's work since then. Just fucking garbage. Just any asshole wants to get out there and grab some model and start ooing and eyeing. Jetame. It's been done. Plus every like every asshole that wants to sound like they are informed will fucking cover and cite Serge as an influence. And you know damn well they weren't. But I guess you know whatever. Anybody can listen to whatever the fuck they want and I don't give a shit. But given that I was mentioning those Gainsbourg tribute albums that McHarvey did. Um, his female counterpart that did the vocals for any of the any of the work that would have been probably sung by either Bridget Bardot, Jane Birkin, Juliette Greco. Any of the female vocals were handled by Anita Lane, and Anita Lane, being that she actually was an original member of the Bad Seeds, um, she recently passed and. Really sucks because I really was hoping she'd come out with another album with Mick because they did a, she had basically two solo albums. The last one she did was in 2001 and then she sort of just disappeared. But from what I understand, she disappeared because she wanted to disappear, not disappear off the face of the earth and not have a life. But the cool thing about her is she never wanted the attention. She just wanted to do the art, get it out there. Whether or not it was well-received or not, it didn't really seem to matter to her. And she wasn't about fame. She wasn't about attention. And I can respect that. It's a shame she passed. I don't know what she, she, um, I don't know what was the cause of her death. But all I know is all the fucking tributes online. Um, They couldn't help but talk more about Nick Cave than her in her own fucking obituary, which I found disgusting. The way media handles this shit, it's like, well, let's talk about why she was important because who she knew. I just find that disgusting. I don't know enough about that i guess the best way to handle this at this point since i keep talking about how great mcharvey's um gainsburg tributes were i'll just play one where he did collaborate with anita lane on it this is from intoxicated man the song is called the song of slurs from the film slogan
That was Gudrun Gut from her album Wildlife from her own label, Monica Enterprises. Uh, a founder, founding member of Mania D, Matador, Malaria, part of the Neudeutschwell movement of uh, the late 70s, early 80s, German. And she still runs her own label. Well, I can't say she's still. She, she runs her own label. There isn't like a still runs. She never stopped running us. So I don't even know why I said that, to be honest with you. She has been very much a staunch figure, I guess, in, in and around Berlin, heavily tied in with the likes of Blixer Bargeld and Anita Lane. I did an interview with Gudrun. Ah, shit. Probably about, shit, it's been about 13, 14 years now. I didn't really think it was that long ago now, but she's always been a very independent musician, artist. She's a very, very nice woman. Yeah, I'm a bit disorganized at the moment, as you can obviously tell. I don't really even have that much I'm going to talk about. Anyhow, let's take a, uh, I got a message here from a listener. Let's hear what they have to say. So Jules, I have a very important question for you, and it's one that you're more than qualified to answer. Um, when it comes to classic rock, why do millennials think that it begins and ends with Led Zeppelin? Classic rock to millennials is basically Led Zeppelin, Led Zeppelin, and Fleetwood Mac, in that order. What gives? Where did we go so, so wrong? That's a good question. But the only thing I could come up with is that they're just fucking stupid. I mean, that's really the only thing I got here. I mean, well, I, I could I could go a little further into that, but they are. They're fucking stupid, and they don't care to expand or research because, you know, that would take too much of their precious time. Whatever. Um, actually, that's, that's Gen Z, too, but I'm not even going to attempt that yet. However, I mean, I will say this. I do have a Gen Z nephew who is... Man, he is cut from the same cloth as I am. I am so fucking happy this kid has a fucking mind like he has. <laughs> Anyhow, back to uh, this Led Zeppelin question, Fleetwood Mac, whatever. Now, that kind of shit was sort of the same crap when I was younger and in school that, you know, I mean, I listened to, obviously, the Kinks, the Who, the Stones, the Doors, Jimi Hendrix, Traffic, you know, the good shit. <laughs> and it wasn't that I just casually listened. I mean, obviously, I grew up with this stuff. It is ingrained. But I could never take Led Zeppelin. And I'll tell you why. It is so pompous. It really fucking is. However, I will say this. I do respect John Paul Jones because in the history of bass players, he's probably the only one out there that is even remotely on par with John Entwistle. Not as good, but he certainly is no, you know, he's not a fucking douchebag. He really, he's the most talented one that was ever in the band. And of course, he's probably the one that nobody pays any attention to. I wouldn't be surprised if most of these, these listeners apparently of Led Zeppelin 
even know what his fucking name is. And that's that's sad. They all know fucking Robert Plant and Jimmy Page, those two fucking clowns. And I'm not saying that either one of those assholes lack talent. I'm not actually even saying that people in Led Zeppelin lack talent. I mean, if you're going to be com- going to compare to like what's current music, I mean, there fucking blows that away. No doubt about that. But it's so fucking overplayed and so cliche. It's a trope. <laughs> By the way, I'll get into that too. How I fucking hate these sort of overused words like fucking trope. What the fuck? Anyhow, no, what I was saying is that like Led Zeppelin and the other one I, it's still the same too, is that everyone with the depth of a fucking toilet bowl brain, they think they're deep when they like Led Zeppelin as well as Pink Floyd. None of these shitheads ever have listened. I, they, don't, they don't even bother with the Sid Barrett era of Pink Floyd either. I mean, it's, it's, it's they kind of go hand in hand. Like the same kind of fucking douchebag likes both. But they don't. <laughs> funniest part is neither one of them fucking understand it. And, and since you bring up Fleetwood Mac. Now, Fleetwood Mac. <laughs> I had that shit shoved up my ass as a young kid. And in my teens, too. My sister was a huge, and I mean huge, fucking fan. Loved them inside and out. It's like Stevie Nicks was her absolute idol. What's funny now, if I talk to my sister about Fleetwood Mac, considering me, she was somebody that was a walking encyclopedia about them, much like how I am about the kinks. And she is sick of them now. I mean, she doesn't hate them, but she used to really hone in on Stevie Nicks as an idol. She has since read Stevie Nicks's autobiography and was so appalled by what a fucking cunt she really is. <laughs> it really just sort of shattered whatever image my sister and my sister was I'm not talking casual fan, huge fan, huge fucking fan. I have seen Stevie Nicks in concert because my sister needed someone to go with her to go to a Stevie Nicks show. Never seen Fleetwood Mac, though. That's fine. I never want to. Well, I take that back. I wouldn't want to see them. I'd go see Lindsey Buckingham, and I just found out he was playing at the Kent State nearby the next few months. I might even just go to that because I actually respect him. He is a very talented musician, and he's gotten a fucking raw end of the deal when it comes to this band. I think the reason, and I'm just speculating here, why Fleetwood Mac is adored by millennials I think it ties in captivated listener of anything that they would they would deem as being pro-feminist, which is so fucking ironic, but bear with me on this. It's that they look at Stevie Nicks as if she's some kind of fucking role model, not the same way my sister looked at her, more in the context of, oh, well, she's so cool because she basically... She fucked everyone in the band and she, you know, she's, it was more like she was so in touch with her sexuality that she just took charge. No, that is, couldn't be further from the truth. She was on fucking drugs and she just fucked whoever for attention. So there seems to be this, I've seen memes and so forth where people seem to think she is so fucking great because... She wrote songs about her asshole boyfriend, Lindsey Buckingham, which I'll just say right now, that bitch would not have ever had a career if it wasn't for him. She's lucky she met that man as much as she shits on him. 
they think it's funny. This, this, this current youth think it's funny that she would basically <laughs> fuck whoever and then still get this guy to, to play guitar and produce her songs. That is just cruel. I don't know why this would be looked at as like something favorable or I don't know. But enough about that. Why do they fucking listen to this shit? Like I said, they, they don't fucking delve deep. They don't care. They don't want anything that makes them think. <laughs> That's really what it boils down to. They don't fucking listen to lyrics. And if they do listen to them, they're looking for ones that their small minds can identify with. That's just my take on it. But I'm going to stop with that. And here's something I was going to do. Since I had brought up John Paul Jones and this episode is about, well, the G is the theme. I think it would be to my best interest to play a collaboration that John Paul Jones was part of, and that was when he collaborated with Dia Monagalas. They did an album together in 1994 called The Sporting Life, and that fucking album is probably, I would say, her most accessible work, but it is such a fucking cool fucking collaboration. And yes, he... He plays the bass like it's the lead instrument all the time, like how John Entwistle did. You know, I mean, that's why I'm saying I don't have a problem with John Paul Jones is because he also is the only one in the fucking band that had any classical training, a musician's musician before he was even in a rock band. So with that said, I'm going to play Do You Take This Man by Diamond Galas and John Paul Jones from the 1994 album Sporting Life. in you and I don't handle disappointment well I'd like to say I could forgive you but I can never forgive just forget now it'll take me ten long years to forget This life I do you adore. I take you out of this world, baby, with a love of fear. And with this feeling, I do bestow upon you all my worldly gifts. Honey, wasn't it beautiful the lovely time we spent together? It was serene. I will never forget you. I will never forget you long as I live. Together. 
Anyhow, since we're on the letter G, the band I'm going to play is Golden Earring. And we all know if, well, not we all, maybe some of you don't know the song, but you should know the song, Twilight Zone. And I'm going to play that one because it's such a fucking kick-ass song and it always has been. But, you know, everybody seems to know Radar Love, but no one knows who did it. And Golden Earring have actually been a band since before the Rolling Stones and the Beatles. You know, before the British invasion, they were a functioning band. They're from the Netherlands. They only had really two hits in North America, but they are fucking huge in Europe, but they were never unknown. They were the type of band that sell out their shows all over Europe. So they're not obscure. I'm not really sure why they never really caught on in a more mainstream way in the United States because their stuff was absolutely, it wasn't so much commercial it was just that it was palatable where it didn't sound too foreign for an american market but yet it still was categorized that way they never caught on heavily because they weren't an english you know they weren't an american or an english band well the fact that they've been around is like i said they predate the beatles and the stones and they never broke up and they're still a functioning band 
the fact that they're not in the rock and rock and roll hall of fame is just like, you know, when you walk into that fucking place and you see Britney Spears clothing on display, some of the shit that NSYNC wore, even though they're not inducted, they just have this shit in there. It's just this fucking bullshit. The fact that golden earring is not in there, this just bothers me. So let's play golden earrings, twilight zone from their 1982 album cut.
You just heard Gollum's Warsaw is Helm from their 2006 Fresh Off Boat album. And I'm glad I've got to see them several times. But it is now time for our special guest. None other than Corey Cardwell. He does this sort of research project where he goes through the motions of researching a song that he fucking hates. <laughs> There's really no other way of putting that. Am I right, Corey? That's probably the best way of putting it. I, yeah, that's and, the best way and, of it. <laughs> and the thing is, you definitely do your research. You're very thorough about this. And I have to give you credit in that you hate with a passion some of these uh, various songs. I'll let you take it from here. You explain, you know, your your motivations, what what you call your uh, your rants. Go go forth with this. Okay, it's your turn. Go ahead. So, so about three years ago, I was coming home from a job that I fucking hated, and mm-hmm. they were playing one song on there and i'm just like you know what someone should just do some sort of critique just to let people know that this song is absolute garbage mm-hmm. I, it, it just was garbage and then i decided to be like you know what i'm gonna do it myself so i started a little <laughs> internet rant called songs that are complete shit and it started in the summer of night uh 2018 i do believe mm-hmm. and then three years later, <laughs> it's still, I didn't do it last year because all of a sudden, uh, Facebook decided to change their community fucking guidelines. Mm-hmm. And so I'm like, all right, am I going to get penalized or get blocked for another 30 days? Like I did in May of last year for <laughs> writing about a song that other people likes or writing about an artist's song. And of course, throwing in a whole bunch of dirty swear words in it because, you know, you got to make it look colorful. <laughs> exactly and just just for the record just so you know there is no censoring here you you but you know that already so yeah. you can you can just fucking cut loose and <laughs> and you know just rip whatever the hell you need to rip apart please be my <laughs> guest and do so i i i, I, I want to know what i want to know which one is really bubbling up inside of you right now so okay. proceed so for your <laughs> this wonderful podcast of yours I decided mm-hmm. to dig deep and pick out one that I absolutely, 100% fucking despise with a passion. Okay. This song is by Kid Rock. It's called <laughs> All Summer Long. Oh, dear. God. fucking hate Kid Rock <laughs> with a passion. I hate this man. He is absolute filth. Why people like him, I don't understand. I don't. I don't understand. It makes no sense to me. People love him. And he has not written one song in his entire career that's good. All of his music sucks from the beginning till now. Nothing was good. This one jumped out at me and I was just like, where did he get the fucking nerve to come up with this piece of shit? Because he wove, well, one of the songs was good. The other song I absolutely despised. And he put them together and came up with this all summer long song. It's shit. It's absolute crap. It's garbage. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, without further ado, I will read you what I wrote. This is the season premiere, I do believe, uh, in 2019 of songs that are complete shit. So, okay. Happy first day of summer. We are back with a new smooth tunes that suck donkey balls. <laughs> this goddamn gash gives me the willies. 
done by a rap rock jackoff that needs to go away and never, ever come back. Robert James Ritchie, or better known as Kid Rock, was born on January 17, 1971 in Romeo, Michigan. He got his start doing rap DJ and then does a crossover combination of rap and rock and when that era fizzled out, he decided to go into the rap rock country route to reinvent himself. Crap. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he has 11 albums along the way that suck ass. Grit Sandwiches and Breakfast is one of the albums. The Polyfuzz Method is another album. And Early Morning Stoned Pimp is another album. Where he come Jeez. up with these titles, I, I, I don't know. They all, they all, whatever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> then on August 18th, 1998, which happens to be my birthday, which blows, <laughs> mm-hmm. he released the album Devil Without a Cause, which brought him to star fuckhead status. There's more albums that after that, but we don't care. Then warped to April 2008 when he released this fusion of suck song all summer long. A combo of Warren Zeron's Wolf, Werewolves of London and obviously, Sweet Home Alabama by Leonard Skinner. Dear God. Got, exactly. <laughs> I got nothing against Warren and Leonard. They did nothing I like anyway, but I digress. Whatever. This piece of shit is just plain old bad. The production and composition is fucking horrible. Don't mash up a song to make us get the goddamn feels, you dinkus. We have it already. It goes back to the old rap game. Bogart a popular song and write a rap over it. Or in his case, write a whole song around it. Other rap artists do this brilliantly. You suck ass at it. Of course, people thought you suck ass at it anyway. Of course, people thought it was the bee's knees. It went to number one in Australia. Austria, the Europe 100 charts, Germany, Ireland, Scotland, Switzerland, and the UK. How? How? Seriously, Let's repeat that one again. It went to number one in Australia, Austria, the European Hot 100, Germany, Ireland, Scotland, Switzerland, and the UK. There is no excuse for that. But go- there is absolutely no fucking excuse for that. Here in the United States, it only went to 23. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and we kind of were not buying it but it went to number one on the adult contemporary charts here in america it did yep jesus christ okay go ahead <laughs> look go hang out with your repub friends discussing calling women bitches and fade away needless to say your entire career just eats the corn out of my asshole go sing sweet home alabama all summer long and fuck off that's the end. <laughs> all right. All right. Now, what was the name of the shitbag song again? It's called All Summer Long by Kid Rock. And because this is this segment is going to replace a segment I had on previous podcasts, which was I would just play a song that sucked. Sh- well, no, it wasn't that it sucked shit. It was just a song I liked, but I knew it was a bad song. Mm-hmm. So I felt since you would you have like really thought this through. I mean, I was just kind of just spitballing, you know, I was just kind of coming <laughs> up with, you know, coming up with something that sounded like, I don't know, like some of the things I've had on there previously have been like, um, like bang tango, you know, shit like that. <laughs> <laughs> but, but yet there's something endearing about them. 
but this kind of shit, this there's there's no redeeming qualities. That's what we need to establish to make very clear that there's there's there is nothing good that comes of this. None. Which is why it 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 like got you worked up so much to have expressed yourself like you took a major shit, you know? Yeah. And yeah. and then like the splashdown is the song. So I it pains me to do this. But I'm actually going to play the song. Now, I, I don't know if I could make it through the whole fucking song, but I'll play the song J- just for like, you know, just to be I, thorough here. I, I want to so we- warn you, I <laughs> warn you, your chili ring may twitch. Okay? <laughs> hey, but I got a bidet now, so that's all right. <laughs> uh, spl- splash some water on it. Get, just, get it ready to go, because I'll tell you right now. Oh, this fucking sucks. <laughs> I can't. It gives me odd. Oh man! All right. Well, with, without further ado, you lead the segue, please. Ladies and gentlemen, here we have Kid Rock singing his all-time summer classic, "All Summer Long." Thanks for your for joining us in this particular episode of uh, My Guria. And uh, without further ado, here's the song. Somewhere between a boy and man She was 17 and she was far from in between It was summertime in northern Michigan fucking horrible i don't want to remember ever hearing that ever again but it's probably gonna be just stuck in my head indefinitely but i really don't want to remember so let's play i don't remember by peter gabriel instead Come 
And we're back with my Gurria. I actually wanted to jump in and say something real quick. Um, sorry about the uh, sound quality. Something went awry when uh, I was in the midst of recording it. And if it sounded muffled, I apologize. But that's what happens. But before I get too much off on a different tangent here, I wanted to go back to the idea I said initially, which was I'm going to talk about film in this particular podcast. And I need to say that I have probably been more into film in this past year than actually music. Not that I'm not into music. Come on. I'll never not be into music, but probably just because I'm fucking stuck at home and I need something to goddamn do. But uh, I've really made it a point to watch more films than I had in quite some time. I mean, I also watched a few new TV shows as well. Well, with the thing with me getting into film, it pretty much kicked off when I watched the film called The Creeping Flesh from 1973. And that's the film I'm going to showcase in this. And The Creeping Flesh starred Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee. Surprisingly, if you know anything about the history of Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing, they both got their fame from Hammer films, Hammer Har films. Peter got his start with, I wouldn't say start, he was already an actor. He just, the poor guy didn't get a starring role until he was in his, about my age, actually. I think he was in his mid-40s. I just read his, his autobiography and that was one of the chapters and it was Failure at 40. And I can't believe this guy persevered the way he did, given how many obstacles he had to he had to get past, but he had very good support in his life. <clears throat> and Christopher Lee, on the other hand, he had challenges as well, and it mostly had to do with his height. Yeah, that's the thing. You wouldn't think that that would be that much of an issue, but the guy was six foot five, and um, you know he had a very interesting background as well. And both of these men are absolutely fascinating. They were fantastic actors. And I believe from when I last checked, I think they were in 24 films together. However, here's the funny part. They may have been in 24 films that they're both in the uh, cast for, but sometimes they were just not in the same scenes. Now, the first film they were in together where they were, you know, both in collective scenes together was in uh, Curse of Frankenstein. And that's what made Peter Cushing think. <laughs> like internationally famous. He was um he had a good run on British TV in the 40s, not the 40s, excuse me, in the 50s. But he was in his 40s, but he didn't like I was saying before, he didn't get a starring role until like the first I mean he had other roles in other films, a few of them in the United States too. But as far as the lead character, this was his first lead role. And boy, what a fucking cool one to have. <laughs> And, um, you know, Lee was the creature in it. He was Frankenstein's creature. And that spun off, I believe, five sequels, all varying in quality. But, you know, within the few preceding years, not to actually probably even less than two years, they were both the leads in Horror of Dracula, where that was Christopher Lee's first lead. First Frankenstein, Peter Cushing is a bad guy. You feel bad for the creature in it. But at the same time, you just, you can't help but love Baron Frankenstein. He's such a dick. 
<laughs> he's diabolical. He's in, he's ridiculously intelligent, and he's gorgeous too. <laughs> but um, Horror of Dracula. Now they did cast this very well because Lee had been given roles of non-speaking roles, like he doesn't have any lines in Curse of Frankenstein. He has barely a line. And maybe a few lines in The Mummy, even though he is the mummy in it. And actually, he doesn't have that many lines in Dra Horror of Dracula, come to think of it. Ironic. I mean, he has them, but I mean, Peter Cushing definitely has more screen time in that film, believe it or not. But whatever. I'm not going to talk about those films as far as like giving a review. I was going to go back to The Creeping Flesh, which is why I started, you know, having a stronger interest in these films than I once had. And um, it's not like I didn't have an interest in these films. It's just like sometimes you need something that sort of wakes you up a bit, you know, gets your brain going. So The Creeping Flesh, that was it. And that wasn't one of their Hammer productions. It was by out by Tygon Films. See, they, Cushing and Lee were in obviously tons of Hammer films. They were, you know, they were what Hammer was marketing. And then they were also in a bunch of Amicus films, which was a rival to Hammer. Amicus mostly focused on anthology films and, you know, these sort of short stories within a film. And both of them were in several of those, starting with Dr. Terror's House of Horror, which is fucking great. But Tygon was a yet another competitor of British cinema at the same time, with even lower budgets than the other two, but still managed to, you know, pull those two in, even though they were, you know, they were by the time they were in Tygen films, they were both extremely famous. So The Creeping Flesh, to give you an idea how these two work together and how these two actors are set up in the film, is that, okay, they're half-brothers in this one. The good guy, well, it depends on how you look at it, is Cushing. Bad guy is Lee. But again, depends on how you look at it. Why don't we take a listen to the original um, trailer because I mean, I can't, obviously you can't see the trailer, but you know what? You can hear it. So why don't we play that time being? Note the difference between these two skulls. Neanderthal, primitive, egg-like. Now compare that with this new specimen. This is the link that scientists have been searching for. A scientific experiment turns into a nightmare as a creature from hell buried since the dawn of time is restored to life do you believe in evil doctor i, I do not mean evil as it is commonly understood i mean the existence of evil as a living organism an epidemic slowly spreading until it affects the whole world Einstein's monster can be destroyed by fire. Dracula, by a silver state driven through his heart. But nothing, nothing will avail against the absolute evil of the creeping flesh. The creeping flesh will infect the innocent with its malignant power. The creeping flesh will drive the insane to new excesses of madness and murder. Oh, 
of murder. <laughs> I always loved the voiceovers from any kind of suspenseful film. It's always been amusing to me. So that gives you a little bit of an idea of what this movie may be about. And I was saying earlier that Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee, they play stepbrothers in this film. Peter's character was is Emmanuel Hilder and Christopher's is James Hilder. Hildern, excuse me. Yeah, they have this uh, this rivalry between the two of them where they're both competing for something that's, I guess, the equivalent, even though it's, you know, made up. I think they call it the Richter Prize. It, you know, it's something like for scientific advancement. It's like the Nobel Peace Prize, but, you know, this is supposed to take place in like a Victorian age. You know, these two brothers are, there's definitely a rivalry there. It seems that Peter Cushing's character is the one that, I don't know, gets to, it's, well, at least it's how it's presented. He gets to get, sort of gallivant around the world and do his paleontology work. And Christopher Lee is like the resentful brother who essentially runs an insane asylum, but is also doing experiments. What basically happens in this film is that Peter Cushing's character, like I said before, he's a Victorian age scientist, and he comes back to London with his new discovery, this full skeleton of some kind of um, pre-homo sapien, much larger than a, you know, a human strange skull structure more on the same level of like i wouldn't say yeti but i would say more like um a really large crow mag neanderthal i'd say it even predates that so it's this very large full skeleton he ships back with him from papua new guinea as he's messing around in the lab now the rivalry with him and christopher lee's character it's presented in a way that they both have some sort of inheritance and Cushing's character is kind of blown a lot of it on his expeditions. And sometimes it has to be doled out through an estate. And Christopher Lee's character is more like, I, I am not helping you. I'm not, I'm not funding any more of your research. You're, you're shit out of luck. But he's not doing that because he's sick of funding money. It's because he's got his own scheme going on too. Back to what actually happens with this the skeleton that Cushing finds. He's in his lab. He's just sort of, he starts to try to kind of clean up the specimen. And he spills water on the hand. And as, he, as he's, you know, kind of has his back turned for a moment, you see what starts to happen is that it only gets on one finger. And this finger... <laughs> starts to grow skin and muscle and tissue and it's starting to almost like spread slowly up the hand or it's just not really slowly up the hand it just like i don't know cushing's character flips out and he cuts off the finger and isolates it and he puts it like in this not test tube but some kind of like lab jar and as i'm sitting there watching the movie i mean i couldn't help but go that looks like a dick <laughs> This this extra long finger on a hand of something that would be much larger than a human hand. It just, it looked like he took a dick and st stuck it in a fucking specimen bottle. Specimen jar, I should say. And uh, <laughs> me being immature, I couldn't help but laugh at that scenario. And, you know, it's one of the things that happens, okay, once this 
skeleton is exposed to water and the flesh starts to return to the bones, it basically, at some point, he tries to isolate it. He takes this, he takes like, he makes a serum and he makes it from, I think it was like, not the, not the skin or whatever from the skeleton, but like some kind of marrow or something. And it's supposed to, I don't know, it, it is supposed to change behavior in a positive way. At least that's his theory. Like going from animalistic to being civilized. And at some point he gives his daughter, she's a grown woman, but he gives his daughter an injection of this shit. And it was more to, to help her, not hurt her. But <laughs> she basically turns into a murderer. <laughs> She turns into a murderer, not just a murderer, but a slutty murderer. (laughs) And that's, that's not all, but that's part of it. Now, Christopher Lee really, he knows that Cushing's character has some kind of specimen he brought back, you know, from Papua New Guinea. And he doesn't know what it is, but he wants to get his hands on it because, you know, he's, he wants to get, you know, they're racing to get this prize. So he enlists some kind of helper and himself to steal the, the skeleton. But these these douchebags, they steal the skeleton while it's raining out. So you see where this is going. So if this skeleton gets wet, it starts growing skin and tissue and starts to come back to life. The theory in it is I believe it's supposed to be something that's, um, first of all, it's supposed to be malevolent in some capacity, but it's also supposed to be possibly not even a human species. At some point, the skeleton gets loose, (laughs) starts to, you know, fuck some shit up. It comes after Cushing, but it doesn't kill him. But he is trying to seek revenge. So his revenge that he seeks is because Cushing took the finger off of his skeleton earlier in the film. He takes Cushing's finger. I'm going to stop right there because I'm, I am dragging this out much longer than it has to be dragged out. The creeping flesh, the cinematography, the pacing, the acting, just the atmosphere in it. I fucking love films like this. And I also love when they bring in something that's an evolutionary find, not so much. You know, it's always kind of in the context of a bunch of, you know, God-fearing Christians too. That's, that's the other part that's always fucking great when they when they um, inject this sort of plot theme in, into some of these films let alone my god just the wardrobe in these films are is just they look stunning they really look stunning and the funny part is is that in real life lee and cushing both <laughs> apparently used to t- they would i wouldn't say they were they weren't stealing but they would acquire some pieces of the wardrobe and they you know keep it as their clothing because they liked it so much and it was already made to measure for them anyway. You know, I get it. These guys wanted to look good on screen and off screen, even if they like pretty much lived very normal domestic lives. You know, they weren't as risque. Some of these films may, you know, lead you to think, you know, there may be these, these hammer films and these amicus and Tygon pictures. They, these pictures, they may have, just tits <laughs> heaving into the cameras. Can you blame these 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 um, production houses for going that route back then? Because some people say it's exploiting women or whatever. 
Uh, I don't see it as exploiting at all because these women got paid. They got fame and they worked with people, that, especially their fellow actors like Cushing and Lee, that were very respectful towards them. They weren't these assholes that are in Hollywood these days. I mean, there's always assholes in Hollywood, but this is a, they're like a different class of actors. They knew how to fucking behave themselves on and off camera. And that's that's admirable. Plus, here's another thing I want to bring up. Think about this for a moment. Could you imagine if Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee were the two guys in the Grey Poupon commercials? You know, they pull up with their chauffeured vehicles, <laughs> speaking to each other out the windows. Pardon me, but would you happen to have any Grey Poupon? That is such a missed opportunity, especially because those commercials were big in the 80s. They were much older men at that point. Peter wasn't taking nearly as many roles by then because he was frail. You know, he, he had prostate cancer. He ended up dying in the early 90s, but he was, he was frail. And Christopher Lee, he wanted to get away from Har, so he did all kinds of shit. Both of them were in a ton of fucking movies, but um, Cushing didn't care if, it's, if he stuck to Har films because he wasn't about pleasing himself. He was more like, hey, if I have fans, I'm lucky. I'll play what they want me to play. And Lee was different in the sense he didn't want to be typecast. So he would branch out and do different things. But he always played <laughs> some kind of like uppity or sophisticated snob or, you know, just somebody who's just really, really well polished. <sighs> Whatever. Um, so do I recommend The Creeping Flesh? Absolutely. Absolutely. I wouldn't even talked about it if it sucked. <laughs> no, that's not true. One of these days, I'm going to do a bad movie review. It's just weird. It was that one that um, tipped me off to like delving back into their, both of their filmographies. And I have, I have been just churning away through them. I mean, it's, it's like the only thing I fucking want to watch anymore. <laughs> so with that said, I think I rambled on far too fucking long with this movie review. So let's listen to a song since we're talking about film. We will play Goblin's Suspiria, just title track Suspiria from the film Suspiria. Enjoy. Yeah. 
And now we have reached the end of episode G of Maigaria. I'd like to take the time and thank any of you that actually tuned in and listened to this. And I'd especially like to thank Corey Cardwell for his massively entertaining input. And hopefully he'll be joining me in later episodes. But that brings me to this. Would some of you like to be a guest on the show or just have a fucking strange discussion with me? If you got some ideas, pitch them to me. You can email me directly at mygaria at gmail. You can also leave a message. I still have that option open at anchored.fm slash mygaria. There is a button on the page that will indicate that you can leave me a voice message there, something I may or may not use in a future podcast. We're going to end this with one last song, and it's going to be as lowbrow as possible. What I'm going to play is Dog Shit by Gigi Allen. Thanks for listening to Bygaria. I'll see you next time. Mama!